Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Live from the soapily beautific hills of Encino, California, where industry and nature work hand in hand. I finally understand Santa now. I, I do. To create a better life for all of us. Following program is produced on the LR Radio Network by Magic Man Allen. True crime uncensored. I am the legendary Burl Bear, the yes. man over there. Yes, you are. Howard Lapidus, manager to the star, one star, Dr. Drew. Pinsky. Saxon watched part of his show the other night. Uh, Dr. Drew and the Jew, whatever that show was. Yeah, it was funny. Yeah, yeah um, it was pretty funny. Yeah, Mark C.G. Boyer, my fact funny. checker, is here. Yeah, but I thought uh, that there are only Jews in Hollywood. <laughs> yes, well, yeah. well, actually, we control everything. The, that's the furthest thing from the truth. Of course, I know that. Okay. You know that there are people who believe that Fox is owned by Americans? <laughs> Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Well, speaking of amazing, Paul LaRosa. Outstanding. Outstanding in his field. He must be a farmer. Uh, oh, Paul. <laughs> Paul, you've been Hello on the show. I'm here. How are you? Paul, it's Howard. How are you? you? You've been on the show before. I haven't had the I pleasure. Have. I haven't had the pleasure of being on with you, but uh, I said to Burl before, moments ago. Just minutes prior to be going on the I said, if this isn't a fun show today, I'm walking. <laughs> and so we're Uh-oh. making sure that it's really, really No, no, quiet. no seriously, seriously, seriously. I, I said, and I said to Bro, I said, this guy's one of us. And you, and you are. We all come from around the same time and generation. And that's what I think will help make today's show that much more interesting. Well, thank you. Uh, I don't think that that deserved a thank you, did it? Yeah, I think it did. <laughs> He's just trying to placate you, Howard, because he knows you're mentally unstable and you could just flip at any moment. That could happen. <laughs> yes, yes. But we're not near each other, so it's fine. No, it, is, it is a pleasure to meet you, sir. Now, you, yeah, thank you, you. Now, you grew up in what they call the projects. i got a question for you about that. Mm-hmm. Probably. Yes. Is it before they used to have tenements? You know, like in the Bowery Boy movies? Right. Which well, is I lived in one of those also, but go ahead. Well, then you're the perfect person to ask about this. With tenements, you had uh, a variation of front porch culture. And I've seen people, you sit out there on the steps, and you yak back and forth with your neighbors. Or if you're Mrs. Goldberg, you yell out the window to Mrs. McGillicuddy across and the, the one next to you. But in the projects, you can't do that. Well, I mean, I, I, you know, it, projects were different back when I moved in, which was 1961 in the Bronx. I mean, uh, these are the Monroe houses we're talking about. And it had just opened in 1961, and, and the Bronx was sort of a, uh, had was really undeveloped, but so it was a brand new project. There were 14 story buildings and uh, eight story buildings, and there were benches. And what happened was the benches took the place of the front porch or the back window or what have you. Uh-huh. And everybody would come down and sit on the benches, and we all talked and got along. And it's probably exactly like what you're talking about, like Mrs. McGillicuddy. Mm, ah, so it did. So there was some socializing uh, besides just wandering in the hallways, what, trying to. Oh find yeah! Your... Oh yeah! I mean, I, I you know. I think people nowadays have the wrong idea about the projects, and it's a pejorative word. But, you know, when they opened, they, they were, I have to say, it was idyllic when I was a little kid. You know, we moved in. There were, everybody moved in at the same time. We all became friends together at the same time. We had many, many adventures. Um, I was telling you that the Bronx was undeveloped. When I moved to Story Avenue, it was actually a dirt road in the Bronx in 1961, and uh, there were a lot. We, we were surrounded by what we called lots, which were empty fields, which had been farmland at one time. Mm. It's hard to believe this, Burl. Yeah, but it is. <laughs> my, fr- my friends and I used to go into those lots and hunt 
rabbit and pheasant with bow and arrows. Did you catch any? No. Good, good because you'd, we'd be talking to a rabies victim about now. <laughs> I did hit a friend, though, I think, once, but that was about it. <laughs> yeah. he, he didn't get hurt. Yeah. yeah, my sister shot my brother with a bow and arrow on the day my mom brought me home from the hospital. How, how far were you from the stadium? Uh, we were pretty far. We, I lived in, the, the houses were in the East Bronx. Uh, later on, when I went to high school, I, it was at Cardinal Hayes, which is on the Grand Concourse, which is right near the stadium. So I used to go over there a lot when I was in high school. When did you know, at what point in your life, the, hanging out there and chasing pheasants with a bow and arrow, that you wanted to be a newspaper man or a reporter or something in media? Well, I, I, I sort of have... I had this love affair with the Daily News building, which was, uh, the, it's still there, the building, but the news moved out. But it's on uh, 220 East 42nd Street, and it's a famous building in New York because it has a giant globe in the lobby. Mm. And when I was a kid, the giant globe in the lobby reminded me exactly of what I was seeing on Superman on TV. <laughs> yeah. Uh, on, they had it on the, the roof. The Daily Planet Daily had Planet. the globe on the roof, and I, had, I saw the globe in the lobby, and my mother used to bring me there to uh, see Santa. It was a big deal in those days. And I sort of fell in love with that building and the globe. And somewhere in the back recesses of my... And I was watching Superman and Clark Kent and Lois Lane and Jimmy Olsen and all that. Great Caesar Steve was planted, you know? But, but, but Paul, I don't want to... I'm, I'm about to just crash this image for you. But, um, <laughs> you know, the Daily Planet uh, building was actually... They, they used the, the city hall here in L.A. <laughs> that oh, was, well, I, that, that may be, but uh, didn't I, that. I didn't know that. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm, I'm just crashing down your entire dream. I've just wiped your. I've, I've wiped your entire career away with one brush. <laughs> I could have been. A, you saw. I could have been mayor of L.A. Yeah, I've been a contenta. <laughs> hey, I went by. I went by uh, George Reeves' house yesterday, so I, I get all excited. Really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Well, yeah. Looking for bullet holes. Well, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but it was uh, that. You know, that, you know, I was on the high school newspaper then, and things like that. Mm. And I tried to write a James Bond book when I was a kid, and you know, uh, so I was. This wasn't that uh, one of those slash fiction things where he's having sex with Minnie Mouse? <laughs> what the hell's the matter with you? <laughs> Pearl, see, you've seen those, haven't you? <laughs> no, seriously, what? Pearl, don't ask. Him what he's wearing. I won't ask him what he's wearing. <laughs> Did that with Aaron Moriarty. Oh, no. Aaron. Yeah, yeah she said the, the reason she came on the show is because I called her a crime hottie and that meant more than all her Emmy Awards. <laughs> yeah, well, she is a hottie. What can I say? You know? You mean that's all I had to say? Yeah, that's all you had to say. Yeah. Really? Yeah, she's easy that way. I'm calling her tomorrow. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so you fall in love with this building. You want to be. Uh, you want to be in that same world with Great Caesar's ghost and Perry White, and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. What was your first? Uh, how did you? How did you make that professional transition? Was it copy boy? Copy boy. Exactly. Well, I, when I was in college, uh, I spotted a job on a bulletin board one day, and it said I, uh, there was some kind of really low-level job at WPIX-TV. Ah. WPIX-TV happened to be in the Daily News building, and it was three floors away, and it was owned by the same company, the Chicago Tribune. So I knew all of that, and uh, basically I sacrificed my, my last year in college to work five nights a week at this a pretty low-level, not-so-great job uh, at the WPIX because I thought it would get me a job as a copy boy at the Daily News when I graduated. And you found and out. Lo and behold, it worked. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> so you, you Thank God it worked. I would have wasted my whole last year of college, you know. But you were in Fordham at the time, correct? Yeah. Mark Boyer, yeah. Yep. 
Fordham it was, yeah. Up in the up in the Bronx, you know. I'm a Bronx boy. Uh, All things Bronx. So you uh, you pursued a career in journalism. Do you remember those classes that I don't know if they give anymore on journalistic ethics? Well, yeah, I don't think I ever took one. To be with you. I sort of picked up things along the way. But, yeah, but yeah, but you picked them up along the way, and you come from an era where journalism—the actual word—actually meant something until uh, recently. Well, it was a, you know it was, a, it was really a different time, and when I started at the news, it, you know, I'm glad I got in just before computers came into came into the newsroom. When I went when I started in '75, there were typewriters all over the place, and. Um, you know, and it was, it was, um, I, I like to call it the, the final gasp of the front page era, you know? Mm-hmm. It was, it, Humphrey Bogart would have been right at home in that newsroom, uh, just like in Deadline USA. Yeah. It would have been, you know, there were, every, people drank a lot, everybody smoked, there were no, it were very, very few women, people would curse at the top of their lungs, there would be pranks, there would be, you know, ball busting all day long. It was, it was a, it was a real wild west kind of atmosphere. So, but, I, I, but let me ask you something. Uh, let me ask you something. Describe the paper for those people who are not listening in New York or even L.A. But describe the Daily News. Well, the Daily News back then, well, it's a tabloid. It still exists. It's a tabloid. It's one of the two major tabloids in New York, the News and the Post. And back then, the News was the largest circulating newspaper in America. Uh, with um, uh, well over a million people who read it, maybe close to two million who bought the paper every day. It was pretty amazing. You know, that's before cable and Internet and all that jazz. So it, it, was, it was fat with ads every day, and pe- everybody in the subway read the daily news. You know, it was a big deal. And it, it, was, um, it was always a picture newspaper. I mean, that's what, what, what its claim to fame. In fact, uh, the, the most famous daily news uh, front page probably was a picture of uh, a woman being executed in the electric chair, which happened back in the 20s, I believe, Ruth Snyder. So um, a daily news cameraman had snuck uh, a camera strapped to his ankle into the execution chamber, and just at the moment they full flipped the switch, he, he flipped his switch, and he got this picture of the woman being electrocuted, and put it, they put it on the front page. Can you imagine anything like that happening today? Can't happen today. I mean, le- I mean, I mean legally, the, on, I, mean, yeah. I mean, the legal department would never let that happen. No I mean, way. You, you can't get through. First of all, you, you can't get through that department anymore. Uh, right. To talk about some of the great headlines, I mean, how that used to work with, yeah, on the front page of that paper. If you're sitting on the yeah, subway. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the other famous one was when, uh, well, there's many, many, but I mean, you know, one of the other ones when I started, New York City was on the verge of bankruptcy, and, uh, you know, they were trying to get money out of the feds. And President Ford said, no way, we're not lending the city any money. And so the headline the next day was, Ford to City, drop dead. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's per- perfect. Was that a direct quote? <laughs> but, no, it wasn't. And I guess over the years, people have... Uh, Ford objected to that because, uh, you know, it made him look really bad, and he said he never said it. It wasn't in quotes, by the way, uh, on the front page. But, that, but, but that, that period in time, when you started, there was all kinds of stuff happening within a, the three, four, five-year period. Oh, yeah. I mean, 75 to 80 in New York was really just an amazing time. I think people are in love with the, the, that era, like the 1970s New York, because it was exciting. It was also very exciting for crime. I mean, you know, uh, the son of Sam, uh, David Berkowitz, was running around shooting people in cars, lovers in cars, and that was like a reign of terror. I mean, uh, you know, part of my job back then was to open uh, the mail that viewers sent in, and 
the son of Sam was sending letters to Jimmy, Jimmy Breslin, Breslin, the columnist back then. And so we would be really freaked out looking for his letters and trying to find them and everything. And there were some. Uh, the, the, city, the city was on the verge of terror with the son of Sam. Oh, yeah. And it wasn't, yeah. It wasn't based on the 11 o'clock news. It was kind of, you know, they'd have, print, to, grab that, they'd have to grab that paper in the morning. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it was yeah, it was so different. Like I, I was out the, the last shooting Berkowitz had. Um, well, one of the last ones was in Queens, and I was I lived in Queens at that point, and I was out, you know, clubbing around at night, and I came into the switchboard the next day, and. You know, one guy said to me, where were you last night? And I said, I was in Bayside, Queens. And he said, the, the son of Sam shot two people there. <laughs> oh, man. You were a suspect. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I didn't hear about it till like, you know, the next morning when I went to work. You know, it's not like, it, it's, it wasn't like it is now. Everything was instantaneous. And, uh... It was it was a fun time. I mean, it was there were well, know, not for the people who were shot, but for someone yeah. working on your end of the business. Do you, do you think if Berkowitz were operating today, that he would uh, use his uh, cell phone camera, take a shot of himself shooting someone, <laughs> sending it Probably. to you guys? I wouldn't be know, surprised. He'd, he'd be a dead duck. You know, they would catch him right away because of all the technology around. You know, yeah. I, I think um, it's not. Uh, the, now, did you open that first yeah. letter to Breslin? I, I did not, but you know, a colleague of mine did. But it was it, it was yeah. You know, we printed a letter. You know, we gave it to the cops, we printed the letter, you know, and then Breslin would write him back on the front page. And, you know, that was just one thing. I mean, there was, uh, you know, the whole punk scene was going on in downtown New York, CBGBs and the Ramones and Talking Heads. I mean, they'd play all the time, and we could easily go see them whenever we wanted to. Um, John Lennon was roaming around New York in those years, living at the Dakota, and you all know what happened. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, he, he, at 1980, which is sort of the end of this whole period we're talking about, um, you know, I was working at I was working the Lobster overnight shift, and just before I left my house, I got a call that Lennon had been shot. So I raced to the Dakota apartment buildings, and I would stay there all night long. It was unbelievable. I was a huge Beatles fan, and it was it, unbelievable. Crowds just showed up out of nowhere, and you know, it wasn't it wasn't like we had cable or anything back then or the internet. There was an eleven o'clock news. I think they even missed the murder because it happened after that. Really happened. Right. Yeah, they they recorded it sometimes early. They'd record the evening news earlier in the evening. Uh-huh. And and so I think they completely if they had anything, they didn't have much. And there were people I know who didn't know about the murder until so they read the paper, saw the headlines the next morning. I found out but, about it watching Monday night football. Cosell had it. Really? Yeah. Really? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. it was, uh, I'm pretty sure. I mean, if you ever see the, uh, the movie Mr. Holland's Opus, I went to an yeah. advanced screening of the film with the producer many years ago, and I'm watching the film, and they get to the part where Lennon gets killed, and they had it wrong. They had Lennon being shot in the afternoon. And, really? and so I, I went up to the producer, I said, you've you got to fix this. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> she gives me an argument. No, there's no argument. <laughs> I said, no, listen, trust me. Yeah. Try, try about 7.30, 7.45 West Coast time. Yeah. And I said, because you're going to look like an absolute idiot if you put this movie out and don't fix this. Yeah. Well, right. I saw a new version of the film when it finally came out, and they took the scene that was Richard Dreyfus listening to the report of the murder and changed it to him listening to a report of the memorial. So they uh-huh. saved their butt on that one. I, I, I was not fortunate enough to be living in New York in those days, but but like, like you, I mean, that must have been something, but I would spend as much time as I could. There was a time I was in how I got there I don't know but I was in Frank Costello's apartment which was across the street wow. on 72nd Street. It was at 72nd and, and Central Park West. Right, right. Right across the street from the Dakota. And so I, I could look into 
many of the apartments that Dakota and I had this fantasy that I was looking into the Lennon apartment. We well, looked at Roberta Flack. Well, I, I would do that. She lives there. Yeah, she still lives there. Yeah. 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 I, 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 you know, listen. I've been begging for years to have somebody give me a tour of the Dakota apartment. Of the Dakota apartment. I haven't gotten in yet, but uh, I would love to see what it looks like inside. But I was, I was going to say, I was there all that night, and you know, people came and they sang Beatles songs and brought guitars, and you know, it was just uh, an amazing time. And they, the cops had to shut the street down because there were so many hundreds and hundreds of people by morning. And I stayed there all night and rushed back to the office and you know tried to write the best story I could because I wanted everybody to know. That that a Beatles fan was writing this story. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, where, do you have those stories still? Or are they in I your do, new, are they in your new book? Or, uh, well, I where do, do we find them? I, no, they're in my basement, actually. But uh, no. <laughs> well, I, I, look, uh, I happen to be well, interested. Some of, them, some of them are quoted in the book. They are. Yeah. Some of those uh, old stories are quoted in the book. And, and that, of course, was on the front page. So. you got to yank them out and put them into your blog. That would be fun. That's a good idea. That's yeah. a good idea. Yeah, Howard's a big uh, fan of your blog. I like your blog. Oh, thank you. Thank yeah. you. Yes, paullarosa.com, as you know out there, there we in go, radio yeah. land. Yep. And uh, so what I did was uh, I uh, I wrote all these stories down of growing up in the projects and working those first few years at the Daily News and how I went from copy boy to reporter and uh, put them in this book, put them in this memoir, Leaving Story Avenue. And I tried to, uh, it's really sort of almost two memoirs in one, the Bronx projects and growing up there and getting into a lot of mischief and then the Daily News and how... Uh, you know, look, I was a kid from the projects, and suddenly I was thrust into this crazy newsroom with tons of characters. I mean, <laughs> like a Damon like, Runyon story. I didn't know what I was getting into. You know, I didn't know where I was. It was like Alice in Wonderland, you know? Was was A.J. Benzer around before? Was A.J. Benzer? This was before his time. He was, was eventually, but this was before him. Did you, you, yeah. did, you didn't work with A.J.? Uh, no. A.J. No. Benzer was one of the guys. Uh, he was a, a gossip guy. Yeah, yeah, I remember him. Yeah. Big, big time, big time gossip guy, a dear friend of mine actually, and and, and well, actually, and you know, the uh, in those years, gossip wasn't. You know, the papers were huge, the tabs, but Page, Murdoch bought uh, the Post and created Page Six in like probably the late seventies, early eighties, right. and that's when gossip and the Daily News hired Liz Smith to write a gossip column, and that was the first. Gossip, those were the first gossip columns in the tabs. It wasn't like... And People Magazine, what was the first issue? I doubt it was in the 70s. 75. Was in the 80s. Was 75, it? yeah. Was it? I'm almost and, and positive. So that, that was the dawn of gossip, like yep. celebrity gossip. It really was. Well, well, not, it wasn't like it is now. You know, you could actually, confidential. But, but, but a guy like Benza, who, who I do have the pleasure of calling a friend, you know, mm-hmm. still to this day, if you go walk into a restaurant in Hollywood with him, there are people that are scared. <laughs> you know, you know, the gossip guys really ruled. It was bizarre what they would know and how they would find it out and what they'd have on people. Now, you know, celebrities can't do anything. People follow TMZ, follows them around with cell phones, you know, and camera phones. We yeah. call up TMZ and tell them where we're going to be. <laughs> <laughs> and they still don't come. <laughs> but for Robert Hayes, they show up. <laughs> that's funny. That's funny. But, you know, it was, uh, it was just, the times were just so different. And not to, you know, of course, they were not PC at all, politically. Nothing was politically correct. I tell the story in the book of, uh, you know, I sat next to a rewrite man who would go out and have oral sex every day on his lunch hour. Good for him. And, and, and brag about it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and tell everybody about it. And, uh, and you know, come back and regale us all with the tales of uh, what it was like. And, you know, everybody was drinking in those years. And it was just, it was just, it was a raucous, fun time. A little scary, too, for me. Well, yeah, but, I know, imagine. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, things are things must seem far more sterile now in the old newsroom compared to those days. Oh yeah, I mean, I left in '91, and you know, it, it, the computers. Here's what happened: the computers changed everything and made it much quieter and more like an insurance office. But it wasn't just that; it's that the you know reporters became journalists you know and and it wasn't uh this wasn't like a blue collar type job anymore in the in the aftermath of watergate uh people flooded the journalism schools journalism became more accepted something everybody wanted to do more white collar you know more college educated the guys i started with you know guys who had been there since the 50s weren't necessarily college educated some were some weren't um so it, it just everything changed. That whole, and by the 80s, it was it was getting, you know, it was still fun, but it was losing some of its raucousness, and people were cleaning up a bit more. And then, well, we're going to take 60 seconds, but we're not going to clean up a damn thing in this place. <laughs> it's still a mess. We'll be right back on True Crime Uncensored with guest Paula Rosa. Hi, this is the legendary Burl Bear. And if there's one thing my five years on Outlaw Radio has taught me, it's that nobody's perfect. In fact, that's the title of my brand new collection of short stories. Nobody's perfect. Yes, short stories about people with all manner of human imperfections. Just because they're short stories doesn't mean they're about Ralph or Jimmy the Printer. No, they're about all sorts of strange people. And, well, it's a bargain at only 99 cents on Kindle or Nook. More, of course, if you buy it in paperback, but 99 cents electronically on Kindle or Nook for Nobody's Perfect. Don't just listen to people who are imperfect. Read about people who are imperfect in my new book, Nobody's Perfect by Burl Bear. Trust me, you'll enjoy it because, well, it's not perfect and neither are you. And now... Back to our regularly scheduled programming, sooner or later. If you own an iPhone or ride the plastic pony in front of Kroger, you are no longer tied to your computer. You are now free to roam and take Outlaw Radio with you everywhere you go. Grab an Outlaw Radio iPhone application, the smoke and drink and interrupting, did I say interrupting? 24-hour party that you follow now follows you. Your iPhone is now the easiest way to stay connected with your friends at Outlaw Radio, like me. Change the way you listen to the radio seven days a week, now available at the iTunes App Store. Back to True Crime Uncensored with Burl Bear and Howard Lapidus. And featuring Mark C.G. Boyer. I can see Mark from here. Who produces this? And sometimes Marie oh, Mackey, Esquire. Occasionally. She has been produced here. by Magic Matthew Allen. Who in turn is produced by... Yeah, who is. in turn is produced by Lori Downey Jr. Yeah, she's hot. Hi, I'm you Earl know, Bear. You know, the, Mark, Mark C.G. Boyer, how you doing, Mark? Nice to have you here. You got a question for Paula Rosa, the brilliant uh, CBS producer and former uh, uh, guy who hung out with heavy drinking reporters? <laughs> And may have been one himself. Yeah. He lost all of his hair. So you decided um, to end your book around the mid-'80s. What what, Mm -hmm. went into that decision? Well, I felt uh, it was sort of a natural circle. You know, at that point, I had... uh, I had won this major journalism award in, in, at the end of the book in 1983, and for me it was validation of, 
you know, what I was striving to do, become like sort of one of the guys or become a professional reporter. And uh, that's that's why. I thought, And I thought, you know, you can't put your whole life into one book, and certainly I left out things that, you know, that there's a lot in my life that was not in the book, but I, I, I just thought... Plus, your life isn't ended. over with yet. <laughs> it's not over with, and you know, of course, after that, I went on to, you know leave the news, which was a huge, heavy decision for me at the time, and come to television. And, uh, you know, look, I, I had a hard time adjusting to television, but now I'm, now I'm in it up to my neck. But, uh, <laughs> I would say I, well, well, we all are, and who knew? Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, my mother used to look at me when I was eight years old, watching TV almost 24 hours a day, and, although <laughs> then I would watch the test pattern. Call. Yeah, you too? Yeah. <laughs> so did I. I loved that Indian. I really yeah. did. You know, but, but she would say, uh, yeah, you know, mister, do you think somebody's going to pay you to do this all day? Uh, ta-da. You know, you know, that's, <laughs> that's like my friend Robin Sherwood was complaining to me years ago about his size. All my kid does is play Nintendo. Does yeah. he think he's going to get a Nintendo scholarship? You know what happened yeah. to the kid? He went out and became a game programmer and makes huge bucks. There you go. See? Well, See? There you go. You follow, for him. you follow your passion is what you do. Yeah. And at some yeah. point, it's going to pay. At some point. I'm waiting. And also, and also I had to leave room for the sequel, right? I mean, yeah, there'll be true. another book down the line somewhere. There you go. See? Yeah. And do you get this? I get this all the time. People come up to me because they know they know I write you know books. They go, "My life should be a book." Exactly. And yeah. I always say, "How does it end?" I think a lot of people's lives can be books, but the trick is to uh, tell interesting stories. I mean, you know, and I think I think what happens with people as a writer, I see this all the time, is they don't know what their own interesting story is. Yeah, uh, that's true. They they just don't see it, and uh, the, you know, they tell you their lives are boring, and then they you know were in Vietnam, and they did this, and they did that, and you know had post traumatic stress syndrome, you know, they they don't see it. They don't see it for what it is, and that's the trick. I mean, listen, I've been taking, you know, classes on writing scripts and screenplays and newspaper articles and magazines for years, so I kind of been trained to see it, and I guess you, you guys certainly are, too. So. I guess, yeah, uh, you know, uh, the quite, people have said to me, you know, I should write a book, and uh, I uh, am certain that I could. I know which book it is. And no, seriously, certain I could, and I'm also certain, Paul, that that six people would read it, and it, I would be five of them. <laughs> well, here's the thing. You know, here's the here's the thing to that. I mean, some a friend of mine, you know, a couple of years ago, and I told him I was writing this book. Said, "Who would want to read a memoir about you?" Because I'm not really famous. And he, you know, I said, "You know what?" They could have said the same thing about Frank McCourt before Angela's Ashes came out. Oh was, yes, indeed. In fact, I got I got to tell you, I was in New York and I'm I'm uh, hanging out with this guy, last name McCourt. <laughs> He says, I'm, uh, I'm going back uh, to the old country with my uncle, uh, and I made a deal with a local cable access channel to show my home movies. We're going to go back and kind of like, you know, track down the family, and I'm going to mm-hmm. shoot a bunch of footage. Well, it turns out uh, there was Angela's Ashes. His uncle wow. was writing. <laughs> the there book, of course, becomes huge, and he sells his home movies to Showtime instead. But, I mean, but you you was, don't know what's yeah, going to happen. But who was Frank? Nobody knew who Frank no. Ford was. I can tell you who he was. He was a high school um, English teacher at Stuyvesant High in New York, which is the best public high school. And, you know, okay, he did that. And he, to- he hung around the Lion's Head, which was a-, a big writer's hangout for years. And he told these stories for years to his writer friends. And, you know, it wasn't until he wrote them down in a certain way, in a certain style, 
that Angela's Ashes became like maybe the biggest memoir of all time. But who knew who he was? And uh, furthermore, most memoirs I read are by people I've never heard of. And I, I'm just go, I just go for the stories. What's your favorite? Well, of course, that's one of my favorites. But right. there's there's another one called Twisted Head, in, <laughs> and it's uh, I can't I can't remember. Tell us about the guy on his lunch hour. <laughs> it's about an Italian guy who grew up in the Bronx in the seventies, and it's and it's it's really funny. It's really funny, and he he was an actor who uh, had a bit bit parts in The Sopranos, and I can't remember his name. The Nick and Carl, Carl something, <laughs> oh. <laughs> Carl something or other. But um, that was a really funny book. But um, uh, other ones, you know, I, I like Joyce Maynard's uh, memoir at Home in the World. You know, I, but there's, a, there's just a bunch out there that are really, really good. And I don't, I don't read autobiographies. Like I'd much rather read a memoir by someone I never heard of than like the autobiography of like George Bush and his years in the White House. Now like, we're I talking. That. There's yeah. some fun times. Well, there's a difference yeah. between memoirs and fiction. Yeah. Well. <laughs> Pearl Bear, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. So, um, so anyway, but uh, that's my shtick. Uh, well, so, so then that. you you turned it from you turned it from uh, the print journalism and then into TV. How? Let us know how that happened. What? What? Uh, how did I get into television? Yeah, what was the well, um, there? that's not. This isn't in the book, but I can tell you anyway. Uh, it's you know there was a, deal, a big newspaper strike in 1990, and we were on strike for five months. Yikes! Yeah, news. That was a long time, and during. And you know, during that time, I got a job in television um, for this CBS entertainment show called Top Cops, and uh, it was kind of like a weird show. We'd, you know, we it would recreate dramatic police stories, and my job was to just, you know, find these dramatic police stories across the country. We'd literally cold call precincts and station houses around the country to try to find these stories. I'd write them up. Somebody would turn it into a script. They'd shoot it in Toronto. And voila, I was on CBS. So I, I did that. And when they settled the strike, I was working there and making more money than I did at the news. They were offering like a $50,000 buyout to not come back to the news. And I said, well, what the hell? I'll throw my lot with TV and see what happens. And, uh, you know, I, at first I was unhappy. I mean, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't all that it was cracked up to be. And I missed the news. It was my well, yeah, life. You probably you know, missed the newsroom, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it was the vibe. Life, but, yeah. You know? yeah. And I thought I made a terrible mistake, and it was only after a couple of years when I finally settled into 48 hours that I, uh, that I became happy in television. And, you know, now, now I love it, but uh, it, it's, a big, it's a big, humbling transition, I can tell you that. Were you there for the, uh, for, for the beginning of 48 hours? Not the very beginning, but but I've worked this since '93. But it's a different you know? show. I mean, it started yeah. out to be one thing, and uh, and now it's exactly. just it's kind of the title of a show. Right. It, it originally of... was uh, supposed to be forty. We'd go someplace and shoot for forty-eight hours, and whatever we shot, we'd make into a dramatic hour of television. Right. I did one of the last ones like that, which was uh, a pediatric emergency room in Cincinnati. So we went there, and you know, it was uh, it was a dramatic weekend. I mean, five major traumas involving children. That or made it into a, uh, an hour of TV, and but but what we found was you we quickly ran out of places where right that, that was, was my so question. There yeah. had to be a meeting somewhere where you guys sat around and they said we have we're to out. have a format change. We're out. Yeah. 
Right. Oh, yeah, I mean, it's, all, it's a limited format, you know. It's a recipe for going off the air. Um, <laughs> Listen, so, we, we, we get pit shows all the time, and, and I go, right, what's episode 67? Exactly. And they yeah, can't you know tell what? you. The networks have these every year when they trot out their shows, and you can see it. You, you know, you know, like, oh, my God, this, is, this premise has nowhere to go, you know. <laughs> Many but, of them. In fact, all of them. You know, every show you've gets canceled. You've had a few of your own. Every show, oh, ahead, <laughs> every show gets canceled. You know that, except, uh, you know, Raymond well, and Seinfeld went out on their own. Knock on wood, 48 hours it hasn't been yet. It will know. be. We Not are just, uh, we here are, to help you. We, <laughs> we're one of the oldest shows on TV. Yeah. 60 Minutes, uh, 20, 20, 48 Hours, Dateline. That's it. Those are the oldest shows on television. Is right that going to be it for television news, those those kind of shows? That's it? Well, you know, now, uh, what's it, is it called Rock Center, I think? It is, uh, yeah, but it's, it's, but it's, it's, but it, it's drawing it terrible, flies. It terrible ratings, exactly. Yeah. Even though they are trying to do serious journalism. And he's tremendous. I, I mean, he, he, he is, is, he is very good. he's very good. Yeah, but I don't think there's a market. I don't think, well, I don't think viewers want to see that anymore. They would rather see some silly reality show like Real Housewives uh, of wherever, you know. And there's a which problem. I watch and, and, which and, I watch too. And I your problem it. is where? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> What's your question? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. there, I mean, there isn't a news division anymore, is there? Sorry to say, sir, those are fine yeah. shows. <laughs> well, I watch them myself, and I do like a couple of them. So I like there. Shaws of Sunset. <laughs> Uh, Isn't that something else? Yeah, I, love I don't it. know that one. Yeah. Uh, oh, Shaws of Sunset is another Seacrest show. It's one of Seacrest's. And, uh-huh. and uh, my God, they took five uh, uh, Persian Americans uh, mm-hmm. who are in the real estate business and make uh, serious. They've got. They come from serious money, and they follow uh, these people around and. Um, it's, it's seriously disturbing. It's, it's disturbing and stupid. But, but boy. You know, those, those shows are massaged by producers, you know, and half a re- I'd say they're half reality shows. Well, they're, yeah. they're you know, look, it's it, we've got, you know, the shows I do, we have major, major, major story departments. You know, I mean, that's why, in a way, 60 Minutes is a treasure, because it's, it's doing very serious journalism that you're never going to see on TV. You don't see anywhere else on television anymore. Um, it's, it, you know, they can do the monastery in Greece that nobody goes to, right. and they, they could do the European debt crisis, and listen, uh, nobody else can do those topics. When they, but when they lost Mike Wallace, they, they lost, you know, and he mm-hmm. somewhat retired yeah. and then passed, but but uh, there's where's that guy that's chasing the guy? You know, I love that stuff. Mm-hmm. Or know? like Ted well, Koppel yeah, used to ask questions on Nightline, and the person would answer, and he'd go, that's very interesting, but now would you answer the question? Uh. Yeah, yeah, he was great, he was great too. Yeah. Yep. I mean, look, I, I think people are much more savvy now, right? I mean, would Al Campanis go on Nightline now and give those stupid answers that he gave back then? Maybe. Well, <laughs> Maybe. I, 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 Campanis, I think yeah. it may be just the opposite. Maybe it's the dumbing down of the of the public no, and the uh, lower. Still, I think you're still with the right person asking the right questions and setting it well, up. Right. You're going to get it. You let's know? look at Sarah Palin and Katie Couric, right? Unbelievable. You got it. Yeah. You got it. And yeah. everybody, you know, she sort of, you know, you, you, it's true. It can still happen. But n- nowadays, uh, it's sort of like music, you know. It's everything is so packaged and everyone is so massaged. It, it, you know, they're trained to try not to say anything. Oh, it's know? terrible. Even, I mean, yeah. look, as much as I like Letterman and, and late night talk shows, you know, they're working off the blue cards. And, you know, yeah. there is no conversation. It's talk. Right. You know, it's it's Q&A. And the, the other thing we get on the, on the hard news topics is a lack of follow-up. I about dropped my eggs watching the Today Show one morning. They had on a guy from the CIA, and the guy mm-hmm. says, the United States government prefers working with dictatorships. 
<laughs> no follow up. No follow up whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. Don't, yeah, don't, don't well, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, Iraq, Iraq, right? Yeah. But I mean, it's uh, it's it's you know that well. I mean, listen. I, I'll be. I'll tell you this much. I was one of those newspaper guys who thought people on TV were were not the brightest in the world. And boy, was I wrong. Uh, boy, was I wrong. I mean, these these people. I can tell you, for firsthand experience, are exceptionally smart. I mean, anchors and correspondence, and they're smart, smart as a whip. Well, you know, we would like, talk- you know, Aaron, like Aaron. Aaron is great. Yeah. Talk about you. Know, you talk about we, we mentioned Brian Williams before. I am certain Brian Williams has got so much depth and and width to what he does that he could host the Tonight Show. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, and host the Daily News and get away with it. You buy it all the time. Whatever yeah. he does, you buy. And and the, the, you know that is a big time talent. He happens. His heart happens to be news. And and you know, only wish that more there were more of him. Exactly. And. Um, yeah, I mean he's very he's very sharp and he's very funny and he he may, he's, he's you know what I think is a is a trait that's um, very highly valued to have sort of self-effacing humor and self-deprecating humor and he has that yes and, he does and and you know that's 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 an admirable thing to have. It is. It is. I, I think people take themselves too seriously. I want to get. Let's get back to this, the, the thing of when when uh, news departments ceased being news departments and news went under the entertainment division. Well, we're still part of the news division, my friend. But, it was you know, good we, for we, you. Yeah, well, there still is a uh, CBS News. Oh, listen! I had a standard. You know, we were talking about journalism ethics the other day. We had a big, you know, standards ethics meeting last week, and uh, CBS takes these things. I mean, the, the dead serious. And I mean, whereas uh, I never talked to a lawyer in my life when I worked at the Daily News. I talked to lawyers all the time working for CBS. I mean, every second of forty-eight hours is gone over by a lawyer, and we look at what we can say and what we can't say, and you know, we don't change things around to make it mis- you know to, mis- to misconstrue the meaning uh, we are super careful and I'm sure NBC and ABC are the same way does that stuck the shocking that- thing the shocking thing about it, and the, the thing with Zimmerman Zimmerman and uh, you know that doctored 911 tape on NBC mm-hmm. you know it was, it was so shocking because it was on NBC I mean you believe me whoever's out there that's not the type of thing nobody does that kind of thing on uh major networks where they may change the meaning of something somebody said to, to angle it one way or another but that's just not done so whoever that was who did that the producer got fired let me ask yeah. you this do, do the lawyers and we'll, we'll uh, think about this question during the break we're, we're gonna pop away for a sec but uh, do the lawyers stunt you as a journalist they don't stunt us as a journalist, but, you know, I think they're very meaningful. I mean, they tell us what we can and can't do, and sometimes they're right, you know? <laughs> okay, we'll, be, we'll be right back. 60 seconds on True Crime Uncensored. There are some things in life that just don't go together. But listen to this. You take one drop-dead gorgeous woman. You add an incredibly wealthy, handsome man. You put them together. They have all the money, clothes, jewels, drugs, alcohol they could possibly want. Well, then you throw in a Glock 9mm handgun. It's all good fun until someone gets killed. Fatal Beauty, the shocking true story of beautiful Rhonda Glover, who put 13 bullets from a Glock 9mm into her boyfriend of 15 years, Jimmy Jost. Oh, she said he was abusive. 
The friend said he was passive. Either way, he was dead. Fatal Beauty, available from Pinnacle True Crime by Burl Bear, living legend, true crime author, and trust me, he's brilliant, I know it, because I am Burl Bear, author of Fatal Beauty. Well, obviously, it's past January 2011, because we're into 2012 already, so <laughs> I have a brand new book that you can buy right now, the same time you get Paul's book, you can buy mine, it's called Headshot, the true story of Paul St. Pierre, an alcoholic sociopath who loved to kill all the time, his brother Christopher, who committed unspeakable acts to be one of the boys, and their best pal Andrew Webb, who talked to skulls and longed to eat human flesh. Obviously, these three guys had deep-rooted emotional problems. Their biggest problem was committing two homicides. In one case, they cut the guy's head off, put it in a bucket of concrete, and threw the bucket in the Puyallup River. Yes, the man was still dead. This is a true story. If you think the crimes are crazy, wait till you hear about the trials. The book is called Headshot by Burl Bear. It's available right now wherever fine, horrifying books are sold in both electronic and in paperback. And also available in electronic or paperback is Paula Rose's book, which is his memoir of his life, his times, his multiple awards, and going from newspaper to television. Hi, Paul! <laughs> you there, Paul? Pitfall run away and hide. Paul. Paul. I think we lost Paul. I'm back. I'm back. Oh, yeah. you're back. There you are. You hear me? Okay. I'm yeah, back. there you are. Gotcha. I was hyping your book, Paul. Thank you. Mostly I was telling people to buy mine when they buy yours because I got a new book out. Excellent. So uh, so we both write true crime, and, uh, you know, I wanted to do something different, too. That's the other part of this whole thing. I, I uh, you know, I've written a lot of true crime, four true crime books, but, you know, I wanted to get into more personal journalism, which I highly admire. So there you go. What's the great American novel for you, the thing that you'd really, really want? Well, The Great Gatsby is the best uh, novel uh, in, in, in my mind. Yeah, the movies suck because they can't capture the romance of the book. Right. Um, and the, 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 the grand, the, the, sort of the grandness of the book but uh, and that's that, that's my favorite book you know catcher in the rye is another one which uh, you know will never be made into a movie uh, probably a good thing um but you know those are my two favorites yeah classics you know what f scott fitzgerald said that if you sell your book to hollywood you go to the california border and you throw the manuscript over the line and they throw a suitcase of money over the other side you put it in the trunk of your car and you turn and face the other direction drive away and never look back <laughs> i think you know that's if if sometimes somebody wanted to make a movie of one of my books I wouldn't care. I wouldn't want to do have anything to do with the screenplay. I would take the money and run. I would do exactly oh, yeah. that. Uh, in, uh, I have a book called Man Overboard, The Counterfeit Resurrection of Phil Champagne. And in the book, there is a conversation where a TV uh, producer named Anthony Spinner says, uh, can we make some changes to the story if we make it into a movie? And the main character, Phil Champagne, says, I don't care if you make me a cartoon mouse. <laughs> <laughs> There you go. You got to have that kind of attitude, I think. If you, you have you to know. be. You got to be a special person to make a movie. You really do. You know, I, don't you think it's really hard to make a good movie? Well, I, I've, I've made a couple of movies, and they sucked. And, and oh, by the way, <laughs> one of them. Listen to this. One of them was nominated for eight Razzie Awards. Oh my goodness! <laughs> there you now go. I won five. Okay, <laughs> congratulations. Yeah. Hey, hey, look, pal. I'm not winning an Oscar. 
I've got that Razzie. Okay? <laughs> you sure do. Yeah. You know, yeah. well, making movies is like watching paint dry and screaming at people. That, I mean, right. It's just awful. And, and, and you see, I've seen terrible movies with fantastic cast, uh, you know, people who were, who've won, uh, you know, a lot of people think J. Edgar, I didn't see it, I was, saw a pretty, was a pretty bad movie, but the guy who wrote it won the Oscar for Milk. So mm-hmm. I, I enjoyed and, that film. You did? You did yeah. yeah. Well, Sean Penn uh, was absolutely incredible. Speaking huh. of Sean Penn, there is a new Sean Penn film that's not out in the U.S. yet called This Must Be the Place. If you get a chance to see it, see it. Incredible. It's going to come out in the United States. I'm sure it will, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah. how did you see this, Mr. Holly? I was tipped off to it by my daughter. Okay. And uh, it was available uh, online. Oh. And uh, so, do you ripped it off? Oh, no, it's one of the services I paid for. Okay, yeah, you pay like two cents a year. Must be the place. That's yeah, it must be the place. Yeah, hmm, I'll look for it. Okay, so you know, the, maybe I can find it. You know, uh, one of the questions I like to ask uh, from a layman's perspective is: uh, How do you come across and or pick the books that you're going to write about, the stories you're going to write about? Hmm, well, that's a good question. Um, you know, it started off with the, I can tell you, Tacoma Confidential. It started off with that. Oh. You guys uh, you, you guys know the West Coast. And, you know, it was about the police chief in Tacoma oh, who yeah. killed his wife and himself in front of his two young children. So, uh, you know, I, I went out there, and it's funny. I went out there for 48 hours, and I thought, there's nothing, this story is over with, because both people are dead. There's not going to be a trial. It's over with. But... You know, I met a few characters, uh, John Hathaway, the the internet reporter and bowling alley bartender, and um, I met a few characters like him, and I fell in love with Tacoma, and I I did all this reporting on it, and we made an hour of it, and at the end of it, I said to myself, you know, this is a nice hour of TV, but this thing could be a book. There's so many twists and turns that we couldn't go really go into. So when there's a lot of depth, that's when Mm -hmm. I say, hey, you know what, this could be a book. there's just I, I would I would actually prefer to write books that have a lot of depth to them rather than um, books that are like in the news and not yeah necessarily I I, necessarily I, have I, I try to pick stories that not everyone's heard of the what I have out now is also a Tacoma story mm-hmm, uh, I heard that yeah yeah and uh, uh, the working with the detective Bob Yerbury who's been on the show uh, and then talking to him about the the case you wrote about I mean that was a shock to be working uh, you know as a homicide detective in the Tacoma Police Department and this is going on you know yeah. I mean that was just too too bizarre. Too that bizarre. was a, that would that you know just never happened before in America. Where like the the police chief of uh, of a, a major a major police force would kill himself and his wife. I mean that's that, that was shocking. That was shocking. Well, she had called so many times. You know, help me, help me. Yep. Mm-hmm. But I mean, who yeah, do you call the, when the, the cops that are beating the crap out of you? Exactly. So, so it was uh, so, so what, have, what have you got your eye on now? Is there a story out there you kind of got uh, in the corner of your eye that you'd like to uh, take on? I don't know about which story I'd like to do a bo- a, like a, a, a true crime book on. I mean, I, you know, in some ways I feel like moving into uh, fiction a little bit now, you know, and stretch my wings. So I'm working on a, a, a contemporary novel and trying to make, uh, make something out of that. Uh, you know, I, look, I, I'm surrounded by death and crime all the time with 48 hours mystery. So sometimes I like to do other things in my spare time. Yeah, yeah, I know it's <laughs> I know it's hard to try, believe. Try a radio show on the weekends. That'll help. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, I know that's hard for people to believe. But, uh, you know, you, you, you want to try different things. Don't you want to try different things, too? You know? Sure. Uh, you're sure. on radio. There you go. 
Yeah. Well, um, and that's why I try to, uh, you know, when I'm not writing the, the true crime, I, you know, I, I write, uh, the, you know, the saint or mysteries. Yeah, the or, saint, you know. right, exactly. So, exactly. you know, something that's entirely different to kind of clear your head out because you can get so into, uh, you know, I was Gary C. King, who's another true crime writer. I don't know if you know Gary. But yeah, when I, I went, know him, but I... Right, I went yeah. to do my first serious true crime crime book after doing Man Overboard, which is kind of a funny one. And he said, mm-hmm. be prepared to cry. And to have nightmares is because you're going to have to sit down with families of people who've had their children murdered uh, or raped and th- or both. Yeah, I, can't, I don't know how you guys do it. And he said, uh, and if you're, the, especially on the first one, is going to be the roughest one. And boy, I'll tell you, he was right because the first one I did, Murder in the Family, it was, uh, uh, was it an eight year old and a, a five year old uh, raped and murdered and a mother uh. murdered. And I mean, it was so bad that the, uh, the police uh, detectives who went and saw the bodies came down and said to the other police you may not want to go upstairs if you can't handle little children you know this horrible scene uh we'll find somebody else because you'll never forget this the rest of your life and uh the one the little girl who was murdered her birthday was september uh 21st uh, 1978 my daughter's was september 23rd so everything in the bedroom was the same the same toys the same kind of bedspread i mean it was very very difficult to do that it's tough it's tough i mean for that. Yeah. yeah. Um, to this day, no. I still remember, I, I still think about uh, this woman named Christy Wilson almost every day because she has never been Oops. seen again. She disappeared in California. And, and uh, you know, I, I got in at the beginning of that story and was with her parents when they were looking for her and her sisters. And, and uh, you know, the, her stepfather was a cop, and there were tons of cops from all over California who came up there. And uh, it was the gold country um, up near San Francisco, but not exactly. Sacramento, around Sacramento. And, like, the guy, there was a guy convicted for, for murder, Mario Garcia. He's serving 65 years to life. Uh, he'll never get out. And he won't give up the body. He won't tell them where the body is, and it drives her family crazy a little bit. And I, I, I don't blame them. I mean, I've written letters to him to try to give him, get him to give up the body, but... To no avail. That's all he did. a guy like that, the, the, the schmuck is. That's all he's got to hold on to is is yeah. something like that. Uh, now, do they terrible. know for sure he did it? I'm I'm like, positive he did it. I mean, it, there was a, there were her hairs in his trunk in a car and no. things like that. Because sometimes you know. people, as you know, will confess to these crimes that they didn't commit because right. it's their only only notoriety. They don't mind being in prison the rest of their lives. <laughs> Nuts. But yeah. this guy also was uh, videotaped. He was, they were met in a casino and they were videotaped leaving together and uh, there's that too. Um, but you know, he again, you know, he, he was like an upstanding middle class guy with two sons and a wife. And um, you know, that whole canard that people don't kill, don't start off killing for the first time. They must have committed other crimes and all that. I don't necessarily believe that. Because almost every uh, domestic uh, domestic violence case we come across is somebody killing their wife or husband, and for the first time, that's their first murder ever. But I, I think people. But if they got away with it, it may not have been their last. <laughs> exactly. I mean, people I think can really compartmentalize, and I think people are really complex, and I think that's what draws me in to want to do murders all the time. I don't really get tired of them uh, in, in my job, my day job, because it's fascinating to realize how complex people are. And murderers are especially interesting because they're the ones who will cross the line the rest of us will not cross for one reason or another. And once they've crossed it, it, there's no going back, you know. 
Exactly. I mean, you can't undo it. But the, I, mean, I don't know if you've had this experience, but you can sit in a room with these guys who've been convicted, and they can convince you they didn't do it. <laughs> and you know they did it. But they believe their own lies so great. It, it, it's, just, it's just amazing to me. It's an amazing phenomenon. Or, the, yeah. or they don't mind that they did it. Other things bother them. Uh, Kirby Anthony, the fellow who raped and murdered uh, his aunt and the two little kids and uh, suspected of killing some other, uh, another kid at one time, they all figure that he also murdered a transsexual uh, person that he had to give him some head and then found out it was a guy. And when he found out it was a guy, uh, he killed him. The cops said, told me that he didn't mind them calling him a baby raper and a baby murderer. But when they said, hey, and you killed that uh, transsexual, he goes, no, no, uh, I never got sex with a transsexual. Yeah, that. That, you know, that, that, that yeah. ticked him off. Yeah, of course. Yeah, they, they, there you go. I mean, people are so complex and weird sometimes. You just can't even believe it. You know, like Jeffrey Dahmer, look at him. You know, you just can't even believe it. Yeah, so, so let's go have some let me, let me take a Let me take a quick left uh, off of these murders. And uh-huh. Let me ask you, you know, because I, I do, uh, in preparing, I, I did stumble across your blog, and, and I really, mm-hmm. you know, kept reading more and more like that. Okay. And, and uh, cultural literacy. Mm-hmm. Um, non-cultural literacy, the pet peeve of yours? Well, yeah, I mean, I wrote this uh, blog, as you know, this is my last post, because, or my, my latest post, I should say, but right. it's because I was, I was driving around Georgia with a colleague of mine, you know, somebody who works for 48 hours, she was 40 years old, and I happened to mention Tommy, the rock opera by The Who, and she was like, what's that? And I was like, you're kidding me, right? You never heard of Tommy, the rock opera by The Who? It was a major Broadway play for like 10 years or something in the 90s. And she had never heard of it. And I, I mean, this woman was in her 40s. I just how couldn't is, believe how it. Is I saw that and I said, how is that possible? I mean, she's living in a cave with a bag yeah, over no, her. but this is not she's somebody. She's not living in a cave. That's, that's right. She's, this a, is she's a, a CBS News employee. <laughs> and and, and, and a, a job at, at a high, you know, at a, at a really good level job and, and, and working with good people. And 40 years, been on the planet for 40 years. Yeah, yeah. My God. I mean, I don't. I mean, I think I told the story. You know, I went. Then I went to my old alma mater, the Fordham, the other day, and you know, the the woman professor who I was just before I went up in front of the class. This was a week before Mike Wallace died, and uh, she said to me, "You know, some of these kids don't even know who Mike Wallace is, and he only left in '08." Yeah. And I said, "You're kidding me!" And she said, "No, they don't know who Mike Wallace is. They have no idea who Walter Cronkite is. These are communications majors." And uh, communication majors have no idea. Yeah. Yeah, but they don't. Nuts. They really don't know. Well, they, she no, said they really didn't know. No, I believe I mean, that. I believe her. You know, why don't you tell me that? That's yeah. interesting. If you um, if you take a degree in film, you are watching the movies from the, the silent film era and out. Mm-hmm. You're, You're right. Be I mean, watching I, I was, all the different. Yeah, I'm. I'm into the communications, and I watched those films so that when I saw. You go. I, I knew about uh, that fellow in the in the film. I, I knew that he had made the man in the moon and all that stuff. Right. I've seen it. And see, I don't get it. I mean, maybe it's maybe it's the over internet overload of information. Maybe that is or overload of misinformation. What's the well, study show that what seventeen percent or whatever the percentage is of people who think that Saddam Hussein uh, bombed uh, the World Trade Center? Uh, we could right. we could do an hour on this stuff with you. This uh, but this hour flew by. Boy, it sure did. Well, uh, the book uh, uh, hype your book one more time. Sure, it's Leaving Story Avenue, uh, my memoir, my journey from the project to the front page, and how I went from a clueless kid in the project to uh, a newspaper reporter at the biggest circulating paper in the country. 
And then went on sale now everywhere. Yes, yes, wherever fine books are sold. And he also produces uh, CBS's 48 Hours. He's won all sorts of big, other big awards. If, if you about. get out west and you're nearby, come come see us live. Sure. Yeah, sure. Tell, tell I, us, I say hi that. to Aaron Forrest. Tell her she's still a crime hottie. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we'd like to have her back on the show. I will indeed. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Paul. Thank Thanks you. all of you. Bye. All right. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. What a nice guy. Charming gentleman. Yep. Yeah, and that Aaron is a crime hottie, by the way. Well, there you go. Pearl, stop it already, <laughs> would you? My God. You, you can't do a show. It, it, it's, it's, just, it's, it's almost as bad as when we have a female writer. Well, I didn't ask him what he was wearing. You were close. Yeah. <laughs> I know what he's wearing. He's wearing jeans and a T-shirt. Uh, you've heard of Magic Matt Allen and the Demons of Decadence in the Light Up Lounge, standard of a beleaguered and tempest-tossed broadcast industry. Yeah, well, revolving door world, rock and roll radio, one constant potential power source. Hey, I'm Burl Bear. In olden days, we all loved radio. Now everyone's afraid of the path they chose. Clear Channel Blows. Radio had personality. These days it's a fatality. So it goes. Clear Channel Blows. We're laid off today. It's so sad to say. Most were sent away. While the big boys play. If you want to stay, they will cut your pay. And voice track all your shows. Unless you are a good tap dancer, Clear Channel is not the answer that I propose. Clear Channel blows. Radio once owned the nation, then came consolidation. Now heaven knows. Clear Channel blows. Everyone had opportunity, now it's a all community jobs are closed. Clear Channel blows. Someone should expose how they thumb their nose as the banks foreclose on the ones disposed. They don't want old pros, just young so-and-sos. They lead round by the nose. So while their fat cats live in clover, good radio is over. We saw it close. Clear Channel blows my opinion. Clear Channel Blows, shared by millions. Clear Channel Blows, there go those 1,400 jobs I could apply for. Bop, bop, bop.